Paul Barclay. This is Big Ideas. Almost six months after the withdrawal of Australian troops from Afghanistan, it's clear the embattled country is in the midst of a major humanitarian crisis. Millions are at risk of starvation, the economy is on the verge of collapse, and a mood of despair has taken hold. Back in August last year, following 20 years of war, Australia and the US departed Afghanistan, leaving the Taliban in control. Since then, the situation has gone from bad to worse. Is Australia and the West doing enough to help struggling Afghans? What should we be doing? In this discussion, I'm talking to independent journalist, filmmaker and author Anthony Lowenstein, who spent a lot of time in Afghanistan in the last 10 years, and Miriam Zahid, founder and director of Afghan Women on the Move. Miriam came to Australia as a refugee from Afghanistan 22 years ago. She is currently producer of My Life, My Story, a project which shares the personal stories of Afghan women living outside of Afghanistan. Stories of displacement, migration and the effects of war. Miriam says Afghanistan is in need of urgent assistance, but Australia is not responding quickly enough. In the past five months, and I'm counting every minute and every day uh, to see if I see any results for the people, at least that I'm in contact from a community perspective and also from the families that I have there. I think the process is, is painfully slow. That's my observation. And there's not much uh, real talk on how uh, we can help them from a humanitarian perspective if we put visa issues aside as well. By slow, you mean slow to provide the type of assistance that's needed in Afghanistan at the moment? As an emergency, it is a situation, yes, that immediate help and aid that needs to be either sent there or rescue them from the horrible situation that they are in. Undoubtedly, Maryam, you're in contact with family of yours that's still in Afghanistan. What are they telling you about how bad the situation is there at the moment? A lot of people currently are financially are struggling. There's shortage of food. There is no banks are open. There is no money coming in or going out. So uh, they don't have much hope that people will come or international communities will come and rescue them and get them some help or planes goes and in and out of Afghanistan. So we're not, they're not much talking about come and take us and to another country. But that the first the conversation every time we have that we are hungry, we want food, we want that shelter. So shelter and food are the main concern because we're talking about 38 million people. And all these 38 million people are hungry, cold, and psychologically and emotionally are in a very, very difficult position. Anthony, the conflict in Afghanistan was Australia's longest war. We are now witnessing the aftermath of it. People are, reports suggest, literally starving to death in Afghanistan at the moment. There are the most terrible reports that I've read of desperate people on the verge of having to sell their own children, sell their body parts. It is diabolical. What more should and could Australia be doing right now? And how much culpability do we have for the situation in Afghanistan today? I think we, and I say the we, I mean the West, I think is 
content to punish Afghanistan for the fact that they won the war. Now, what I mean by that is many Western countries, and obviously the major player here is the US. Australia plays a role. I'll get to that in a moment. The US, of course, is the key player here after the last 20 years. The US under President Biden, and it wouldn't have been much different had it been Trump or someone else, I think is content to let the Afghan people suffer. The sanctions that are now imposed on essentially so they claim the Taliban because they don't want to recognise the Taliban as a government that is and a, and a military militant movement that beat the US in the West over 20 years. Yes, some of them are suffering, they being the Taliban, to be sure, but the people who are principally suffering are the people, as Mariam said. There are tens and tens of millions of Afghans who are on the verge of starvation. The UN has said that roughly 98% of the population is food insecure. Now, Australia has a deep culpability there in terms of what we did in Afghanistan now is incredibly unclear. There are serious allegations of war crimes that are remain unpunished. I think in general, the Australian government, both the current government and the Labor opposition, don't want to talk about Afghanistan. It's in the past. It's done. It was a debacle. Let's just move on. And the truth is at the moment, there's no serious discussion about reparations. I mean, that's just an issue that is never gets talked about. I mean, it's a foreign concept to give people reparations, those who may have suffered for harm that we as Australians caused. To me, the obvious solution here, and Australia, as I said, is a relatively minor player, of course, in the world, is recognising and engaging the Taliban. Now, to me, doing that does not mean you embrace the Taliban, you give them a bear hug. That's not what I'm suggesting. The truth is the US is already engaging the Taliban, let us do it covertly. And to me, at the moment, by not doing that, you are happy to allow millions of Afghans to potentially starve to death. Just finally, this does not mean by any means that I and people who advocate this position embrace the Taliban, support the Taliban. There are many governments around the world that we engage who may fundamentally be against what we believe in and support, but without a degree of engagement and discussion and financial backing, the people are the ones there who are suffering. Yeah, Marianne, what's your take on that? This is obviously a very contested issue, how to deal with the Taliban. They're now the government of Afghanistan, whether we like it or not. And one would imagine they're also going to be responsible principally for the distribution of humanitarian assistance that comes into the country. Should we in the West recognise the Taliban as the government of Afghanistan? To me, until we don't see Taliban given the basic human rights of every citizen in Afghanistan, I would say not to, because from the experience that I have back home and what they are saying, putting women especially aside and not recognizing their human rights and their human basic human rights, recognize them and giving the power of years and years to come to govern the Afghanistan, I would not be recommending to recognize them. But in terms of giving the people voice, people are dying. And I'm talking from being humanitarian worker. I'm more concerned about giving the people food, give people the, the needs that they have. And that does not and must not be in consultation with Taliban. Taliban is just followers of their big bosses outside of Afghanistan. Just in terms of how the local Afghan community in Australia are responding and providing their own assistance, 
back home. Are people sending money back from Australia to Afghanistan to assist their families, to assist their relatives because of the parlous economic situation there? Yes, yes, including myself. I not only uh, send my family my money, uh, my families, uh, but also I sent uh, the community and I sent, uh, we run campaigns to help during the winter time. We have campaign for many, many causes, especially in the past couple of months. But the trouble is that for how long? And for how long we can uh, run campaigns to just send $100 a family? And for how long they have to live just on bread and water? Uh, and this is also a concern. Uh, there has to be a middle ground. There has to be a, a constructive approach to the needs of vulnerable communities in Afghanistan. Anthony, what should the priority be for the government in terms of the short term, the immediate term, in providing some assistance to Afghanistan? Well, yes. I mean, the short term is humanitarian support. And there's no doubt that there are a lot of NGOs that have been operating in Afghanistan for years who have remained there since the Taliban took over, both Australia and otherwise. They're still there. Many of them are complaining that the inability of getting funds into the country, getting enough materials into the country due to the sanctions, due, as Mariam said, the banks are almost collapsed. The infrastructure of the country is collapsing incredibly quickly. But to me, a priority of Australia should be, and this to me should be a key aim of both the federal government and the uh, Labor opposition is to say, we as Australians have a responsibility to what has happened to this country. We occupied it for 20 years. We took in a ridiculously small number of Afghan refugees for the last 20 years. We are currently planning to take very few, if enough. I, I think to put it politely, I see that the lack of speed that the Australian government has shown towards the Afghan arrivals, roughly four and a half thousand mm. since August when the Taliban took over is a deliberate aim to not be seen to be too generous to brown people before the election. That might sound incredibly brutal, but that's very much how I see it. And this, by the way, is bipartisan. Yeah. This is not just an attack on the Morrison government. I would say exactly the same thing if the Labor Party was in power, and they obviously maybe this year, who knows. My sense is that not much would change about that. Both major sides of politics have supported the Afghan war. Neither major side of politics are talking about reparations. Neither side of politics are talking about seriously helping Afghans who have arrived in Australia. And neither side are particularly pushing for enough Afghans to help, either those in Australia now or those who could be assisted both in Afghanistan and elsewhere. So this really has been a bipartisan failure. It's interesting to go back and look at how the vast majority of Australian politicians and, frankly, most in the media, supported the US-backed occupation for years and years, despite the fact that during that time there were serious allegations about Afghan government war crimes, not for a second to diminish Taliban crimes, which were huge. I'm not diminishing that for a second. But there is, I think, a, I would say it's a quasi-colonial mindset that says we in the West have the right to control and manage your country, Afghanistan. And even though it's been a complete disaster, when it falls apart, we will walk away. But the truth is, for years, most of the left and much of the right supported that war under the guise of we're helping Afghanistan, we're building them up, we're supporting their women. And having spent time in Afghanistan, there's no doubt 
that there are definitely groups of Afghans who benefited from the war. When I say benefited, I'm not talking about financial, though that too, Afghan women, there's no doubt huge numbers of women went to school and got educated who would never have done so had the Taliban stayed in power. That's undeniably true. But what's forgotten is that 70% of the Afghan population live in the countryside, don't live in Kabul, don't live in the cities. And many of them, including some of whom I spoke to, will say, and I'm not saying they warmly welcome the Taliban, they do not, some might, but many do not. But for them, the last 20 years has been an absolute living hell both from the mm. Afghan government, from the US military forces, from drones and the Taliban. And I'm not saying they're all saying, welcome the Taliban, this is fantastic coming to our home. No, but for many of them in many parts of the country, now is the most peaceful it's been in 40 years. That's the reality. That doesn't minimise, by the way, any of the other humanitarian crises that's going on at all. But the violence mostly has massively reduced. No war, but economic collapse. So, yes. uh, Maryam, I was reading, remarkably, half of Afghanistan's population is under the age of 18. You really have to wonder what the future is for the children in that country, don't you? Right. And if we just focus on the absence of bombing and suicide bombs that Taliban is not doing anymore, then all we're going to have these next generation will grow without education, without freedom of thoughts, freedoms of, without knowing about their basic human rights. Much as I agree that there has been a violence of suicide bombers and any other factors that were killing people every day, including my family members and, and friends that I have had in Afghanistan, I'm worried about that if we just focus on just because they stop suicide bombs and there's no war, the silence will kill them. Depression will kill them. Uh, poverty will kill them. And I, I, a woman that were born 22 years ago and hoping for her future, and now she will be at home having no future, having no hope, no aspiration. Uh, uh, so I am so worried about future of our young Afghan boys and girls in Afghanistan. Yes, I've heard figures of up to 100,000 people indicating that they would like to come to Australia under humanitarian visas. Anthony just spoke earlier about how slow that process is and the limited amount of humanitarian places that currently exist in Australia. But I'm wondering, are there members of your family who would like to leave? Yes, yes I have uh, family members that I have also sponsored. My uh, staff or volunteers that work for Afghan Women on the Movie, still they are invisibly active, but um, there hasn't been any improvement or any news on what's going to happen. And that's worrying because uh, for the past four months, I've lost sleep. I've been re-traumatized. Everything that has happened to me coming to Australia, with all the struggles that I came to Australia, uh, I think that's even worse and slower than my time 22 years ago. And I'm quite disappointed mm. to to the how much we have here in Australia, how privileged we are, how much we are aware of what we have done back home and what has happened through all these international forces. Still, we are in denial of, of let's do something. There's a crisis. And one imagines members of the community that you speak to here in Australia feel kind of traumatised by what they're seeing the country going through now after all those years of war. And at the end, sure, the bombs have stopped but the place is falling apart. 
Yes, because war, first of all, war takes so much from you and trauma lasts forever. So Afghan community are from a place of trauma, including myself. Uh, I've lost 20 years of my young adulthood uh, and my childhood as well in Afghanistan. So now that everything is history is repeating itself, uh, you can only imagine women and men also like me, uh, how desperate and how disappointed we are uh, that there is no platform for us to share our concerns. There is no collective approach to this crisis and there is no outcome and impact of our talks, whether it's with our politicians or with our community members or consultation that have been taking place with Afghan community. Anthony, I was going through some of the recent media reports in preparation for this interview and What was striking, given the magnitude of this story and the magnitude of the suffering in Afghanistan, is how relatively little reporting there is. I mean, some media outlets, sure, have a commitment to focusing on this story. But when you compare to the focus on the withdrawal last year and the media that jumped on that and the anniversaries of the 20th you know 20th anniversary reports of the war then all of a sudden the withdrawal and really there really is not much coverage of this given the magnitude of suffering i would say the media's got a really short attention span but i think it's actually more pernicious than that i think during the withdrawal for sure heaps of coverage sympathetic coverage coverage around the fate of the Afghan people, but you realise six months on how cynical that was because many of the journalists, and I'm not just talking about here, I'm talking about the US as well, who were on the ground in Kabul reporting on friends, allies, colleagues who were trying to escape, many of those people were the ones who had spent 20 years blindly supporting the US-backed war in the first place. So for them, although they often didn't necessarily explicitly say so, some did, not all, Their view was there should be an indefinite U.S. occupation. Now, that's a view. I don't personally share that, but that's a view that one can have and agree or disagree with that, fine. But then the question is, well, what does that exactly mean? What exactly does an indefinite U.S. occupation look like? And for many Afghans, though not all, they were so disgusted with the corruption of the current or former and current Afghan government Uh, including some friends of mine who used to work for the government, most of whom who resigned in disgust because it was so corrupt. And I think the media in general, I would say in most of the last 20 years, with some very notable exceptions, of course, there's been some great reporting stories, short films about the, the situation, true. I think in general, my feeling about journalism in general in terms of war reporting is the vast majority of journalists who report on war see themselves as embedded ideologically. I'm not just talking about embedded maybe with a US soldier or Australian soldier. That's obviously part of the game too. They're they're invested in the idea that there is a benign sense behind a Western-backed occupation. We are there liberating the peasants of Afghanistan. Now, it's not said as grossly as that but I think that attitude is very much apparent and it's not just started with Afghanistan it was the same in parts of Iraq it was the same in Vietnam back in the day it's the same in parts of Libya when the West went in there in 2011 there is a constant theme of media massive interest then losing interest as the country collapses and falls apart and we've seen that I think sadly here in the last six months and there are some journalists doing vital work still there some Westerners and Afghans and they're doing mostly very good work in very hard circumstances, and they should be celebrated for that. But much of the world is seemingly forgotten. Uh, Miriam, any thoughts on how we can 
refocus more attention on this crisis because I just wonder how much people in Australia, in in the outer suburbs of Australia who aren't paying close attention necessarily to everything that's going on in the news, how much they know about what's going on in Afghanistan. Oh, and as Anthony said, that there is not much after the first couple of weeks of the crisis, there's not much has happened through social media to create awareness. And currently I'm running an exhibition of my life, my story. And every single person that has came to this exhibition and are still coming, they said, we thought that everything has stopped. Everything is kind of getting either better or something because what really happened? And that really put everything in perspective of how much people are depending on our social media presence now. Mm. A station like yourself, Paul, that this conversation needs to be tackled again, needs to have a very constructive approach on how we address each part of this distraction especially now women and children that are very vulnerable part of Afghanistan's society, that they are deprived from everything that you can ask for a normal human being. And my heart cries when every time I see Afghan women, I talk with Afghan women, I even feel really guilty now that the more I speak, the more I create this hope, knowing that when I wanted to give back, my hands are not that long because the way we live here, who will give it for me to give to them? Because I'm also coming from Afghanistan and I don't have much to give. It's only my voice. And my voice only can happen if we push for justice collectively. And I think the point you made before about the role that art can play, art can cut through in a way that uh, perhaps conventional journalism isn't cutting through. Yeah, and uh, My Life, My Story currently got a good attention from our friends, supporters, media as well. And uh, and I was surprised, as I said before, that how much people uh, knew of what's happening right now after Taliban came. I think this exhibition has created to challenge the perception of Afghan community here in Australia that we we can have voice, we will be, uh, we will be asking for justice, but we yeah. need all of our Australian and multicultural communities to come and stand next to us and, and ask for, for help. Anthony, we've spoken a lot in this discussion about the situation in Afghanistan, how the country was ruined by war and now its aftermath. But uh, this doesn't mean that there haven't been winners out of the misery in Afghanistan. This is something I know you've looked at in the past in your film and book around disaster capitalism, making money out of out of misery. And you know of, don't you, private companies and private individuals who've made big money in Afghanistan. Perhaps just give us a taste of that. You know, when the war ended, inverted commas, and the Taliban took over, people said the war was a disaster. But the question is disaster for whom? Obviously, the Afghan people, that's a given, for many soldiers, for sure. But there are a lot of people who made a lot of money. This is some Afghan locals, but also foreigners. And I spent time in Afghanistan in the last decade a number of times looking at a few things. One, the private security industry, which made a killing there because the country was very insecure. And secondly, the issues around the largely untapped mineral resources under the ground. There's anywhere between one to four trillion US dollars under the ground, everything from gold, copper, lithium, some of the key resources for our technology, mobile phones, computers, etc. The short version is in the last 20 years, the US, many other countries, including Australia, attempted to try to exploit those resources and got 
nowhere is the long and the short of it. The country was at war. And now that the Taliban have taken over, there are a number of other players, namely China and Pakistan, that do hope to exploit that. You know, when the war ended in inverted commas in August, there was a number of stories written about how America's biggest weapons manufacturers, namely Rayathon, Lockheed Martin, etc., they did unbelievably well from the war, as they did from the Iraq war. And in fact, when the Afghan war ended in August, the CEOs of those companies were saying, not even um, with embarrassment, we need to find new conflicts. <laughs> like We need to find new ways to make money here, which is why I would argue, this is an aside, the war in Ukraine or the potential war over Ukraine is partly about that. I know that's a separate issue I won't get into, but it's partly, I think, about elements in the US pushing for some kind of conflict. But the Afghan war was a huge financial benefit for a lot more people than we like to think. And mm. that sadly is so much what modern war is. It's about who's going to make money and who can get access to resources. Struggling for a silver lining here, and I'm just wondering, perhaps I'm being incredibly naive by even suggesting this, but is there any hope that that mineral wealth can be tapped for the benefit of the Afghan people themselves? I probably just will say that even if Afghanistan get benefits from all the resources that Afghanistan has, will women benefit from it? Will mm. women get empowered by it? My, I always will be thinking of them that... You know, I think with the mineral resources, and I agree with Mariam 100%, I mean, whether the country has a viable resource industry, I mean... History would suggest in countries like Afghanistan, the record's normally pretty poor, that yes, some people make some money, but most people don't make any money, particularly the women who are suffering greatly, and the men, of course, too, and the kids. And there's obviously questions around whether the resources should be mined in the first place because of the risks around climate change. But look, Afghan friends of mine sort of say Afghanistan hasn't got that luxury in a way, the luxury of that conversation, that not to say one should ignore climate change, not at all, but if there are one to four trillion dollars worth of resources is there a way to do that sustainably i mean as i said mm. my investigation over the last 10 years in lots of countries that are similar to afghanistan would suggest arguably not i'm happy to be yeah. uh, corrected on that but there, i'd say the record of the chances are not that high which means really the immediate way forward for afghanistan is dependence on assistance from the countries that have helped to create the problem that they now face. Absolutely. And that, of course, becomes an aid-dependent country, which is what it's been for the last 20 years. And that's sort of the, I guess that to me is an environment that a lot of people in countries like Afghanistan don't want to be indefinitely reliant on aid. Right now, aid is vital. It needs to arrive today. But in the longer term, the idea that a country like Afghanistan is forever on the teeth of the IMF or the US government or USAID to me is not a way for a country to thrive. Um, and a lot of other countries like that, South Sudan and others, have been like that for years and it doesn't work. Yeah. It benefits a handful and does not really benefit the majority. So I suppose just finally to you, Mariam, can you uh, imagine a time in the near future when you'd be able to travel back to Afghanistan and see your friends and relatives and family there, or is that really hard to imagine right now? It's, it's been 27 years that I have been, so since I've left Afghanistan. So when I Taliban came, I rang at 10.30 my, to my, my father and I said, it's all your fault because you didn't let me to go and look at now. I don't think so. Even uh, 
I think for another couple of years, I don't think I would be able to go, but um, there's a hope and optimism in terms of us pushing for justice, bring justice. We fought before, we will fight again because we can't depend on when they're going to go away, so we go. We will fight for justice again. Miriam Zahid, founder and director of Afghan Women on the Move and producer of My Life, My Story. Links to both are on the website. Before her, independent journalist, filmmaker and author, Anthony Lowenstein. More information about Anthony's work can also be found on our homepage. That's it for today. I'm Paul Barclay. Thanks for listening. Until next time, bye for now.